Good morning all and welcome. I think there are still a few more people coming in. Um, so, but I think let's, let's get cracking. Um, so good morning and welcome. Um, my name is Kit Arkwright on, and on behalf of Beef and Lamb New Zealand, uh, we'd like to thank you for dialing in today. Um, look, this presentation I think is gonna be fantastic. Um, it's, I'm soon introduce Dr. Ty Bill, who will be talking today about animal source foods in healthy and sustainable diets. Um, look, personally, I'm really excited to, to hear his presentation, given the relevance his research has on our work here at Beef and Lamb New Zealand, uh, and no doubt many of you dialing in today. Um, look, just before I get going, I just wanted to run past the format and a little bit of housekeeping on how the, the session will work. Dr. Bill will take you through his presentation, which will take around 45 minutes. Um, look, in this time, if you have any questions, and I'm sure you will do, please just pop them in the in the Q&A uh, section. You can hopefully see that at the top of top bar of Teams. Um, that's certainly where it is for me on my screen. Uh, and then we'll we'll look to come back to those questions and address them at the end of the presentation. Um, we have allowed another 45 minutes of, of time for questions at the end. Um, these will be facilitated by Beef and Lamb's Head of Nutrition, Julia Sakula. Um, look, if we don't have time to get through all of them, we will do our best to, to follow up after the webinar is finished. Uh, and the only other request is um, please keep your microphones off for the duration of the presentation. We should have set the setting to keep them off, but if you can see that they're on, please do turn them off. Um, so a little bit on Dr. Ty Beal. Um, Dr. Ty Beal is a, a global nutrition and, and food system scientist dedicated to achieving healthy and sustainable diets for all. Through his research, he examines dietary patterns and their impacts on human health uh, and the environment. His findings have been published in top scientific journals, including The Lancet, The Lancet Global Health and others. Uh, Dr. Bill frequently presents his expertise on nutrition and food systems at professional conferences and webinars. He also shares insights with the public, appearing on podcasts, blogs, um, producing op-eds that make scientific research accessible. As a researcher, a research advisor at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, he helps shape evidence-based programs and policies. Uh, so without further ado, I'll now hand over to Dr. Beale. Thanks, Kit. Uh, it's great to be here. Greetings, everybody from Auckland. It's nice to be on the same time zone. I'm not a, a day behind, so that's fun. Uh, so I'm gonna share my screen and let's just um, make sure it's coming through. Um, okay. So I'm going to talk about uh, animal source foods and I'm going to cover a few different um, aspects that I think are relevant. So why do we need them? So really, what is the nutrition situation globally? Really look around the world at different patterns. I'm going to um, try to address the nutritional contribution. What's unique about animal source foods? What do they provide? What are the health risks we should be concerned about? and then get into the discussion around sustainability. So how do we produce animal source foods uh, in ways that are uh, sustainable to the environment primarily and thinking about the different, um, the different ways to think about how to do that. So too many people worldwide are malnourished. This figure comes from Global Nutrition Report. So this is in 2021. And it's really just highlighting the large burden of malnutrition. So we have everything from undernutrition, like stunting, affecting about a quarter of all children under five. Uh, at the same time, we have conditions of overweight and obesity affecting 40% of adults. 
anemia, about one in three women and adolescent girls, 15 to 49 years of age. And then some of these non-communicable disease markers like high blood pressure affecting about one in five adults. Now, when we zoom in on vitamins and minerals, we see quite um, high prevalence of deficiencies. So this evidence is looking at deficiency of one or more micronutrients in preschool-aged children and women of reproductive age. It's quite shocking to see one in two children, two in three women have at least one deficiency. So if we were thinking of all of the essential nutrients, uh, this prevalence could be even higher. Now, deficiencies are quite high in lower income context. So countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, many of them have uh, issues where nine in 10 women have at least one deficiency. So the vast majority of the population are facing uh, deficiencies. Uh, what may be surprising to many is that deficiencies can be very high even in high income countries. And so we had data from the UK and the US showing that about one in two women in the UK and one in three women in the US have at least one deficiency. Uh, thinking of iron deficiency alone, that's about 20%, so one in five women in both of those countries. In the UK, we also see deficiencies in folate and vitamin Now, this um, really highlights the, the how widespread across regions these deficiencies are. Uh, what we can see is that every region faces uh, micronutrient deficiencies. And on the far right, we can see that high income countries also face a high prevalence. So we don't have great data on all of these uh, around uh, around every country in the world, but it's very likely that in Australia, in New Zealand, um, even other high income countries, we see deficiencies. So when we look at protein, we have data from about 10 years ago estimating that a billion people do not consume enough. Now, this is a rough estimate, but it highlights how um, how widespread this can be as well. Many of these people probably don't consume enough calories because we know that uh, hunger and undernourishment is widespread as well. However, it's a um, significant gap that cannot be overlooked. Most of this occurs in lower income contexts where people uh, cannot access a diversity of foods or even enough calories to meet their needs. Looking at micronutrient inadequacies, so this is really about the diet. We look at uh, estimates one in terms of what people eat and we compare that to the recommended intakes. We see um, big shortfalls. So this is a very busy graph, but the X axis is showing uh, a number of countries and the Y axis is showing a number of micronutrients and each box indicates the prevalence of that country and that nutrient of inadequacy. So the darker the red, the higher the inadequacy. So we can see on the far right for females, many countries have several uh, boxes that are very dark red. So very high prevalence of inadequacy, not meeting nutrient needs. Uh, on the left, we see certain countries uh, in higher income contexts, for example, the US still showing um, multiple nutrients with inadequacies. The differences between men and women are um, prevalent, um, but both populations have uh, a high prevalence. Now, this data isn't published yet. Um, it's under development, but it highlights how widespread uh, the inadequacies can be when we look at modeled estimates of dietary intake from the Global Dietary Database. So I just want to highlight how um, prevalent some of these deficiencies 
these are inadequacies in, in the estimated diets can be. So calcium, iron, vitamin E, over 5 billion people not consuming enough. Now, when we think about uh, animal source food consumption worldwide, we see very low intake in lower income countries, especially in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And this shows the uh, inequities in access to foods. Many of the population groups will, would want to consume more animal source foods, but don't have access or can't afford them. And now we know that uh, limiting animal source foods carries unintended risk. This is uh, data looking at the uh, Eat Lancet diet and estimating the percent of recommended intakes for six priority micronutrients. Now these micronutrients are often uh, challenging nutrients worldwide. And so what we can see is that for vitamin B12, for calcium, iron, and zinc, uh, the diet uh, is estimated to fall short of those recommended intakes. When we look at women specifically, we see that iron intakes are actually far below the recommended intakes. So it's a real concern when, uh, when animal source foods are limited too much that we really have to pay attention to how to meet those nutrient needs, especially iron for women. Now, when we think about how to achieve that, um, dietary change is one strategy. And if, if we were to make the diet adequate for uh, all population groups worldwide, uh, we estimate that it would actually take an increase in, in animal source foods from the sort of 14% uh, of calories in the Eat Lancet reference diet. Uh, so that's not, that's not an increase from consumption in high income contexts, but it's an increase from the target of that diet. Part of the reason for that is because the uh, phytate in a uh, heavily plant-based diet can be very high, and that can really inhibit, uh, inhibit the absorption of minerals like iron and zinc. So now we're going to talk about something uh, really that is unique about animal source foods. So why are they different from plant-based foods? So we know that they have um, really the only dietary uh, intrinsic retinol, heme iron, vitamin B12, and vitamin D3. Uh, very bioavailable zinc because it lacks inhibitors like phytate. A complete uh, amino acid profile, highly bioavailable protein. Uh, the only source of DHA and EPA, so these are long-chain omega-3 fats, except for sea vegetables. And then unique compounds that can be uh, health-promoting, so things like creatine, answerine, taurine, etc., which are not uh, essential necessarily, but have been shown to have positive health impacts. Now, lastly, uh, plants really contain the highest quantities of phytonutrients, but we know that meat and milk uh, produced on diverse pastures uh, with, a, with a diversity of uh, plants can actually contain meaningful amounts of phytonutrients. And that's really, um, I think, important to know that the way that the uh, meat and milk is produced can have an impact on the nutritional value of that product. Now, when we look at which, uh, which foods are the highest sources of these priority nutrients that we know are lacking worldwide, so uh, considering vitamin A, folate, B12, calcium, iron, and zinc, we can see here uh, which foods are the highest uh, densest sources of those nutrients. So what this is showing on the left is the calories required to provide an average of a third of the recommended intakes across these six nutrients. And on the right is the grams required. So this is indicating the, sh the smaller the bar, the higher the nutrient density of that food. And now these are color coded 
green being the highest nutrient value and the tan color being the lowest. So what we see is that uh, animal source foods, especially organ meats like liver, um, small dried fish, bivalves, so these are uh, mussels, clams, oysters, crustaceans, and other shellfish, and then ruminant meat, eggs, and dairy really provide the highest densities of these nutrients alongside with dark green leafy vegetables. So things like spinach, kale, etc. Now each food has its own um, suite of nutrients and of course different foods contain varying amounts of these nutrients, but what this shows is that many animal source foods and dark leafy greens can actually provide very high densities of bioavailable nutrients that are commonly lacking. And so we can see uh, many of these are actually providing several uh, really good sources of several of these critical nutrients. Now animal source foods, um, as I mentioned, have more bioavailable forms of several nutrients. So this graph is just showing that visually we can see omega-3s, uh, a tenfold uh, increase in bioavailability, vitamin A about a twelvefold. When we look at iron and zinc, it really depends on the um, individual and their diet, but uh, on average, it's estimated that iron in ruminant meat is about twice as bioavailable as iron in pulses. So those are legumes, nuts, and seeds. And zinc is actually estimated to be about 70% more bioavailable. It could be even higher than this. Um, we have limited evidence, but uh, it's clear that the bioavailability in animal source foods is, is much higher for these uh, nutrients. Now, zooming in on protein, uh, this is common knowledge, I think, that protein from animal sources is high quality. This is showing the DS, and we can see that most plant source foods uh, score low, with the exception being soy. So soy, um, depending on the study, uh, has a has a varying uh, quality of protein, but uh, from this evidence, uh, it actually rates pretty high alongside animal source foods. Uh, and so animal source foods have a particularly important role at certain life stages across the life course. Um, so one in one way that they're important is through certain nutrients that um, can pass through the breast milk um, in terms of the, the mother's status influencing the density of those nutrients in the breast milk. So uh, B12, choline, and, and lipids can be influenced by the uh, maternal status. So it's really important that uh, mothers are uh, consuming adequate nutrients. So animal source foods have been very important um, in efforts to improve child child growth and development in lower income context and have uh, really been shown to improve uh, both of those components when uh, introduced into context with low consumption. Even in the higher income countries, it's uh, challenging for young children to meet uh, nutrient needs on vegan diets. Uh, there's been evidence that even uh, diets designed by dietitians can have um, be really challenged to meet the, the high requirements of young children uh, during that critical stage when they're complementary uh, feeding, so they're introduced to foods for the first time. Uh, lastly, dairy products have also been associated with positive outcomes in, in terms of uh, birth outcomes, healthy birth weight and length, and then among adolescents, we see some uh, associations with improved bone health, height, and then uh, even reduced overweight and obesity. Now, it's uh, most evidence points to plant-rich diets being very important for longevity. I think that's true. 
Uh, there's some evidence to suggest that consuming too little animal, so animal source foods, particularly protein, may not be optimal for longevity. And one of the reasons is that uh, muscle health in older age is really uh, a challenge for many people. And so, uh, you know, randomized controlled trials have shown that lean red meat intake can be very protective against uh, sarcopenia in older adults. And then dairy has also had positive um, impacts um, on different outcomes in older adults as well. So from an evolutionary perspective, I think it's really helpful to zoom in and see uh, how long have we been consuming these foods? So uh, we evolved consuming animal source foods. That was part of the reason for our adapted uh, human anatomy, metabolism, and especially this cognitive capacity that um, really diverges from other apes. Uh, when we look at estimates of the proportion of calories from animal source foods, it really varies depending on how far the, the hunter-gatherer groups are from the equator, but on average, it's around half of calories. So it's a very high, um, high proportion, much higher than even uh, the highest consuming countries. And the other thing to note was that uh, chronic disease was rare in ancestral communities, and even in um, modern cultures, the cultures that have really maintained their traditional diets and lifestyles. Uh, while it's true that uh, many populations did not live into older age, as uh, life expectancy is much higher now, there is evidence that um, for some populations that did um, live into older age, they are also have a low burden of chronic disease. So I think it's really highlighting not that uh, high amounts of animal source foods are necessary, but that they are potentially compatible with uh, low burdens of chronic disease. However, uh, there are health risks of overconsumption, and I'm going to highlight three that are um, really the, the target in dietary guidelines. There are many other, um, many other potential concerns, but I'm going to highlight these three. So processed meat, red meat, saturated fats. So processed meat is, has the sort of strongest um, evidence here, and I'll, I'll walk through that. Um, red meat has quite a bit of mixed evidence and usually showing that moderate consumption is associated with positive, um, positive um, nutritional factors. Uh, and then saturated fats usually um, showing potential negative impacts at higher intakes. So from a health perspective of processed meat, uh, what are the reasons? You know, preservatives like sodium, nitrites, nitrates uh, can, can increase risk for chronic disease. They can also be high in saturated fat. And then uh, carcinogenic compounds can be generated depending on how the, the meat is produced. So smoking, deep frying, or cooking well done can produce these uh, carcinogenic compounds. The qualities of different types of processed meat um, really do vary widely, but there's little evidence that has looked at their differential health effects. And so I think it's really important in terms of future research to better understand what type of processing uh, is the most healthy and the most harmful in terms of health risks. So in general, um, my view of the evidence that it's best to limit consumption, small amounts in the context of a healthy diet is probably okay. This shows where uh, processed meat consumption is most common. So this is the prevalence of consumption in terms of individuals asked, um, adults asked, did you consume processed meat in the last 24 hours? So we see that in Higher income countries like Chile and the United States, um, almost half of the population consumed processed meat the day before. So in the in higher income countries, it's generally a, a pretty widespread issue of overconsumption, potentially, 
However, uh, we see that many lower income countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh in Asia, and then Tanzania, U Uganda, et cetera, in sub-Saharan Africa, having quite low consumption. So their public health burden of processed meat is, is pretty much negligible, probably. Now, when we look at unprocessed red meat, we see that high intakes are associated um, pretty consistently with non-communicable diseases and with mortality, especially when looking at the epidemiology. However, when consumed in moderation uh, in the context of a balanced diet, the risks usually disappear or diminish quite substantially. We know that certain types of cooking, as with processed meat, can be more problematic. So frying, deep frying, broiling, and barbecuing, basically all the ways that make it taste great are potentially problematic. And so there's sort of a trade-off there, um, but I think there are ways to produce the meat in less harmful ways. So boiling, poaching, and stewing, for example. Now the guidelines from the WHO currently recommend less than 71 grams per day. Um, other evidence um, potentially suggests uh, lower intakes. It's really a trade-off here with uh, a lot of things, uh, cultural preference, um, dietary um, kind of convenience, um, what people uh, feel good eating, uh, how low you want your risk of chronic disease to be, um, your ability to meet your nutrient needs, especially iron and zinc, for example. So I think it's really a lot of considerations. Some people do really well on little to no intake. Others do well on higher amounts. Now this is showing where unprocessed red meat consumption is um, highest and lowest. And we can see this is based on modeled estimates, but in general, we see very high intakes in Central and Eastern Europe and Central Asia followed by Southeast and East Asia. Now keep in mind, this is not looking at processed meat consumption, which is higher in high income countries. But what's uh, I think quite fascinating is that uh, when we look at unprocessed meat consumption, high income countries actually have estimated lower consumption than the world average, which I think is a common narrative that you know high income countries are the highest consumers. Uh, while that is true for processed meat, it's not true for unprocessed red meat. And we can see the very low intakes in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So lastly, I'm looking at saturated fat. Now, saturated fats tend to increase um, ApoB. So these are um, atherogenic particles that can really increase the risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, excess intake uh, that's separated from the food matrix. So butter, butter oil used in um, ultra processed foods and specific types like palmitic acid are likely more problematic. Uh, really, the role of the food matrix, I think, is becoming more and more important, and we see uh, evidence that's really looking at the effect of saturated fat in natural whole foods versus some of these refined products. And we, see, uh, we, we seem to see a difference. I think there's still more research that is needed. But in general, trying to moderate um, saturated fat, I think, is really a positive thing. Um, it may not be the largest driver of chronic disease, but I think it does play a role. And then trying to get it from minimally processed foods, uh, which is contained in the whole food matrix. This, um, for example, in dairy, the milk flat fat globule membrane really can be protective um, when, when consumed in whole um, dairy products like yogurt, cheese, milk. So saturated fat consumption varies quite a lot around the world. We see very high uh, consumption in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, but also in Europe and America.
certain countries in Africa from the uh, palm oil and Australia and New Zealand as well. So as I mentioned, there are many other potential concerns. I'm not going to go into depth. There have been some uh, research that has looked more in depth at these issues, but I'll just say that uh, really it depends on the population you're looking at, to what extent these are a problem and the, um, the production method and the products available. In general, um, you know, the FAO put out a very uh, sort of seminal report, it's over 300 pages this year, on the contribution of terrestrial animal source foods to healthy diets uh, for improved nutrition and health outcomes. And their sort of conclusion was that with inappropriate dietary patterns, animal source foods really do contribute to healthy diets. So with that context, it's sort of the recommendation is animal source foods are important because they're highly nutrient dense. However, it's really important to consume them uh, in appropriate dietary patterns and to, to moderate or limit the more problematic types of animal source foods. So lastly, I'm going to get into the sustainability, and I am not uh, an environmental science by training uh, and scientist by training, but I uh, have worked with many, and I'm just going to highlight some of the key, I think, strategies to uh, try to have sustainable animal source food production. So we know food systems have a large environmental impact. Uh, it's estimated that a third of the human-caused greenhouse gas emissions come from uh, the food system. The majority of freshwater withdrawals coming from the food system as well. And lastly, and incredibly important, is the uh, threat to species extinction. This has really happened from the conversion of natural land to ecosystems, uh, natural ecosystems to agricultural land. And this is much of this has already happened, and uh, that's difficult to uh, restore. And really, uh, it's still continuing to happen in some parts of the world today. So. Uh, there, I'm going to go through a few different areas that are potentially problematic and uh, talk about and discuss the different um, benefits and risks to the environment. So livestock use a lot of land. I think that's probably well known. Uh, you can see here the share of um, land use. And what's I think really important to highlight is that the majority of the land used for livestock is actually not um, suitable for uh, crop production. And so the only way to use that for food production is really through uh, grazing livestock. So the, the land is not you know, fertile enough, it's too steep, uh, many different reasons why that may be the case. I think it's just important to highlight, uh, yes, land use is a, an environmental concern for sure, uh, but there are, there are many rangelands around the world that are actually not able to be produced uh, for crops, to produce crops, and importantly, there um, are ways to sustainably produce livestock on those lands. So as long as there's a real intention and effort to conserve um, biodiversity and other natural resources, um, there are ways to do that. Uh, when we look at soils, um, this is also a sort of potential positive, potential negative. Uh, when managed appropriately, manure can increase the amount of nutrients in the soil, in the organic uh, soil organic matter. Uh, there, there can also be um, ways to actually limit soil compaction and regulate soil temperatures and water through uh, sustainable grazing practices. However, um, many of the practices employed around the world are very um, problematic. Um, so excess manure can lead to nutrient losses. This can happen through gaseous emissions, leaching, and runoff. And so there's a real need to uh, uh, improve practices uh, around the world. 
when we look at water, it's true like with land, livestock use a lot of uh, agricultural water. Um, however, uh, most of this is actually from rainwater. So this water would fall on the land, uh, whether or not there were livestock on the land. And so I think it's really just important to manage livestock properly, have the right, um, the amount of livestock on any given part of land needs to be uh, sustainable and needs to be um, suitable to the local context. Because mismanagement can really lead to runoff and nutrient leaks that can be hazardous to livestock, the freshwater resources themselves, and other um, ocean and marine environments. Uh, livestock have really caused a lot of um, loss of biodiversity. So this is through land use, um, for example, habitat change from clearing forests um, for grazing, for uh, feed pr crop production, for example, uh, limiting the uh, fragmenting landscapes. Now this happens also with crops, but uh, livestock have their, their fair share. However, um, livestock can also be used to uh, promote biodiversity. So in many areas, uh, as mentioned previously, the only way to use land for, uh, you know, certain rangelands for food production is through grazing livestock. And it, um, if you work with ranchers, um, you know, conservationists can actually have a role to play um, through grazing management and through making sure that landscapes are connected and that the, um, the production really fits the local context and is actually suitable um, with the right production methods. When we think about climate change, um, the largest uh, contribution of livestock is really through uh, methane emissions. And so there are many different ways to address this um, through circular um, production systems, which I'll talk about uh, on the next slide, but also um, through, um, you know, storing carbon in the soil, certain grazing management, um, really trying to improve efficiencies. So there's a lot of inefficiencies in different production systems around the world. Uh, you know, mentioning the circular uh, bioeconomy, there are ways to make use of co-products from processing. So distiller grains, for example, um, others that can be used as feed, crop residues, um, and then of course, all of the inedible grasses that um, cannot be consumed by humans. <coughs> Excuse me. So we can also make a lot of improvements with feed supplementation and manure treatment, and technologies are changing and improving every day. So there's a lot that can be done. Um, and lastly, changing demand. So I think this is sort of speaking to the efforts to go um, more plant-based. I think there is a role for moderating animal source foods because of their potential large impact. It's just really about the scale and what's sustainable and where. So from a circularity perspective, this is really showing those potential trade-offs of, it really depends on how the livestock are produced. So that happens across all of these five domains that I discussed through water, land use, soils, climate, and biodiversity. And circularity is one strategy that can actually improve and enhance the positive aspects of livestock production in these different domains. Uh, it's not a panacea, but it is a really key way to uh, improve the sustainability of livestock production. And um, on farm, or on ranch um, biodiversity is also really important. It's called agrobiodiversity. There are a number of ways that this is important. It provides, of course, the diverse foods that we need for a nutrient adequate, healthy diet, but it also increases the resilience on farm 
helps conserve genetic resources so that we have a diversity of plant and animal um, products that help ecosystems thrive and also provide uh, uh, healthy diets. Um, and then these, when a you know a healthy ecosystem is sort of required to um, to produce healthy products and to be sustainable. And there are certain components of cultural heritage that can be preserved through this practice as well, as opposed to um, just large scale industrial monocultures for producing foods. I think this is pretty critical. Most people would agree uh, a third of our food being lost or wasted is not acceptable. And so we really need to uh, scale up efforts to minimize food loss and waste. At the same time, circularity is important, but we also want to have high productivity. So production efficiency matters. Now, this is not just important at the individual um, food level, but on the overall farm level. So if, if a, you know, a farm or ranch is producing a large quantity of a diversity of products that counts as production efficiency. It doesn't have to be just one product. So I mentioned this sustainable diets really are plant rich from all the evidence that I can see, but they also must provide adequate essential nutrients and limiting too much the animal source foods uh, really has some risk there. And so I think we need to pursue a range of uh, approaches. And the reason for that is because um, reaching the global population with adequate diets is no easy task. There are barriers to all of these categories for different um, demographics and different contexts. So while dietary change is ideal, it's not feasible to provide adequate healthy diets to everyone in the population. There are inequities. People um, who want more diverse diets can't afford them and they can't access them. So we need other strategies. We need safety nets like fortification. Uh, which adds vitamins and minerals to staple foods. We need biofortification. This is crop breeding to make uh, foods more nutritious and more resilient. And then supplementation, especially for population groups with increased needs. So thinking of pregnant lactating women, for example, um, even young children or women of reproductive age with a high iron needs. So I'm going to wrap it up with some conclusions. Uh, I said first that malnutrition is really widespread globally. This includes uh, issues with undernutrition, like nutrient deficiencies and stunting and anemia, but also issues of overweight and obesity, of chronic diseases like heart disease, um, diabetes, cancer. Uh, animal source foods are rich in bioavailable nutrients, and these are nutrients that are commonly lacking globally. So uh, nutrients like iron and zinc, for example. Low consumption, especially in the context of Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, of animal source foods increases risk for undernutrition, especially during early childhood and in other population groups that have increased requirements like women and older adults. Uh, populations consuming low levels of animal source foods would generally benefit from increased consumption. So in terms of the health context, there's actually a, a benefit that could happen from increased consumptions and any risk that could be uh, increased on the chronic disease side would be uh, would be probably not as um, important as the increased nutrients that are achieved. However, excess consumption of uh, certain animal source foods, especially processed meat, can really increase risk for uh, non-communicable diseases. And this is a problem, particularly in certain regions, higher income context, 
and in uh, certain European and Asian countries. So in many of these populations where consumption is uh, above recommended levels, reductions can have a positive impact on health because of the decreased uh, chronic disease risk. And that could have potential co-benefits for the environment as well, moderating, moderating intakes where they're high. Uh, in general, we, we see that animal source food production can have a large environmental impact. However, uh, there are ways to improve the sustainability, reduce the impact, and really uh, livestock are integral to diverse agroecosystems and for circular systems that make use of uh, crops uh, that are not, you know, grasses that are not edible to humans, um, residues, waste, recycling, uh, those, etc. Really, it's important to tailor these production systems to the local context and um, produce them at the right scale. So there is a limit to how much can be produced, and that really depends on the context and which type of product. At the same time, boosting production efficiency overall and cutting food loss and waste are fundamental. We can't ignore the need to produce efficiency efficiently, and this needs to happen across the world where, where animal source foods are produced. Um, so agro-biodiverse um, ecosystems, so farms, ranches that are producing a diversity of plant and animal source foods are also really important using circular approaches. Uh, and finally, uh, sustainable diets are plant rich, yes, but they need to be nutrient adequate. So let's not forget the importance of making sure that we can provide healthy, adequate diets uh, sustainably. So that's it. I'm happy to answer any questions in the uh, discussion. And then also, if you would like slides, feel free to email me and I can send them to you. Thanks.